Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Sandra Davidson. I'm Anita Rao. This is She and Her. Anita, do you know what is coming up? Um, what? <laughs> A lot of things, but most notably tax day. That's right. And I have a question for you. What's that? On a scale of one to 10, how would you describe your knowledge of taxes and money and all that jazz? <laughs> Um, my knowledge of taxes is very limited. I've been doing them on my own for a couple of years now using the easy TurboTax. My financial knowledge also very limited. I have a really embarrassing story about my first <laughs> I conversation. I was hoping you would tell this. I didn't know if you would. Oh yeah. My first conversation with my family's financial planner when they like my parents transitioned a few funds over to my name and he was like, I just want to start out by talking with you about sort of what your assets are. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. He's like, so tell me, you know, you know, what are your assets? And I was like, um, an iPhone, I have a laptop. <laughs> and he like, let me ramble on. And he was like, okay, so I'm talking more about, you know, stocks, bonds. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh, good God. Don't you know that from my parents? So limited. I've been trying my best to educate myself more and more um, as I get farther into the working world. Um, but it's a challenge. I am right there with you. I remember when I was a little kid, I remember, you know, you hear about stocks and bonds. I feel like the first time I remember hearing about them is in Annie. Like, oh, Daddy really? Warbucks and oh him playing the stocks or I don't know. I just <laughs> maybe I'm totally making that up. But that's an association I have with stocks and that film. And I remember one time having my mom and my granddad explain what they were to me because I found them to be quite fascinating and mystical. But it's like it went in one ear and out the other. Yeah. And I have had I've efforted on so many different occasions to reteach myself that relearn that. And it's just it's not easy. So I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm probably at about a three at about a three. All right. Well, lucky enough, we are very stoked to have a guest tonight who knows far more than both Sandra and I, uh, Pamela Kapalid is a certified financial planner from New York City. And after several years of working in the financial services industry, she founded something called Brunch and Budget, which is a creative way to help millennials get their finances together. I've actually had a few friends who have gone to brunch with Pamela with this Brunch and Budget program. So essentially she... Um, 
has someone take her out to brunch and they bring all their financial documents and they use that as sort of a space to work through financial qualms and quandaries in a non-threatening environment. Um, And she does this sort of as a way to give back to millennials who don't maybe have access to other financial services. So we're going to hear all about that um, and about the business that she has built around financial literacy education. Um, So we'll be talking with her about that, her work, and some rapid-fire questions we've put together from listeners to our show. So we are thrilled to welcome Pamela Kapalid to She and Her. Hey, Pam. Hi. How's it going? How's it going? Great. We're so excited to have you on. So am I. I was like silently laughing in the background at your stories. I was just like, oh my gosh, that's so classic. Is it? Oh, we're so typical. We're basic. (laughs) No, it's just one of those things where I feel like everyone is like, gosh, am I the only one who's an idiot about this? And it's like, of course not. Yes. Nobody taught us this in school. Our parents didn't know how to teach us. And so we learn all of this through like osmosis hopefully but also through trial and error so I was just like that those are great stories I love it oh good well we're also <laughs> going to learn it through podcasts oh, like we yours. are exactly and in, in yeah. the conversation that we have here and so let's just let's just get this started by you telling us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, where you're from and maybe what your family's relationship to money was like when you were growing up yeah. Ooh, we're getting deep fast. All right. <laughs> so I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually, I grew up in the Bay Area in California, but I was actually, I was born in the Philippines and I moved here when I was two. So I feel very American um, and very Americanized, but my parents are both immigrant parents. And along with that came just like a lot of frugality, a lot of, we never talked about money. When I was a kid, I saw my mom sit at her desk and write checks and mark envelopes and send envelopes out. I had no idea what she was doing. Um, There was a lot of, you know, we can't really afford this. We can't afford that. And a lot of because I just said so. And I think that was that was what kind of made me a little anxious about money, even though I didn't realize it. Um, And I was also taught, I feel like what every kid was taught and definitely every immigrant kid was taught is, the way to be successful is to get good grades and get into a good college and get good grades there and then get a good job. So I stumbled into finance because I found this Craigslist ad um, asking if anyone wanted to be a camp counselor for this thing called the money camp. And oh. I was just like, camp? Yeah, camp sounds fun. Sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's do it. I like kids. I've worked with kids before. Um, and so, so that's how I, and I found myself like at, I think I was like 20 years old, majoring in literature and teaching like 12 year olds how to budget and how to manage credit cards and how to look at their credit scores and how to open savings accounts and, you know, what a business owner was. And I I remember like telling kids like why it's important to have an LLC at Mm. some point and we definitely talked about stocks and bonds and had that you know they they had an understanding of the stock market and I just at the end of that first summer I was like oh my god I'm jealous of these kids why didn't I get this (laughs) when I was 12. So did you You were you like googling Uh, at night to know this stuff or did you how did you educate yourself to teach them because it doesn't seem like you've necessarily been in that world very much before. 
So a lot of this was learning through actually teaching the camps and talking to other advisors and working with um, working with my boss, who knew a lot of stuff. Um, and so that, that's really where I got a baseline of the material. And then I would just, like, look things up and see what kind of information I could find, um, whatever was available on the Internet, really. And so that's how I taught myself. And I feel like what was interesting is the best way to learn all of this stuff is to have to teach it to kids. Oh, (laughs) totally. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And it was also an interesting way to hold myself accountable. Like, I never even thought about getting a credit card because I always had this idea that credit cards were a bad thing. Me too. Uh, My mom never talked to me about it, right? I totally, I didn't get it till like my last week of college. (laughs) It was like, okay, now it's time to get a credit card. I also treated mine like a debit card for the first Three years I had one. Yep. <laughs> totally. We had this like mantra at Money Camp. If you can't afford it in cash, you can't afford it at all. Yes. <laughs> that was something we made the kids say a bunch. <laughs> so how did you get from, oh, from Money Camp to a full-time job in financial planning? So I knew I'd always wanted to move to New York. And I basically decided I'd graduated from UC Santa Barbara and I knew that I couldn't really do much with a literature degree, so I used the connection that I had um, doing teacher trainings for the Money Camp, a financial planner in New York, and asked him if there were any openings at his firm. And I started off working in operations at this um, small boutique wealth management firm slash insurance agency. And I totally hated it the first year, honestly. I was like, what have I done? This is like the worst decision I've ever made. I can't, I hated taking the subway. I hated wearing tights in the winter. I had to buy my first winter coat. (laughs) So how did you then arrive to brunch and budget? Why don't you tell us about what that is and where that came from? Yeah, brunch and budget actually was kind of an accident. So I moved out of operations, and there was a role that opened up as a financial planning associate. And so I was finally doing financial planning, working on client-specific cases and looking at their finances, their net worth statements, helping them with their state plans and all of the insurance things that they had. But I was doing it in a wealth management capacity. So I was helping clients who were making a million dollars a year. I remember I had this one day where I looked at a client's balance sheet. And I was like, $5 million, that's not that much money. And I was just like, "Wow, oh, did I just say that to myself? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Losing that perspective for a second kind of pulled me back in and reminded me, like, wait, I'm here for a reason. And so the other side of it is that I was the only finance person in my group of friends. And so I would get people coming up to me at parties and asking me finance questions about their credit cards or about opening IRAs. And I had one one friend come up to me. We were, like, at a party in Brooklyn. We were hanging out at a fire pit. And she was like, Pam, I know I really need to look at my finances and my credit card debt, but I'm so afraid to mm. look. And I just looked at her. Yeah. I looked at her and I said, why don't we do it over brunch or something? And she was like, okay. And her whole demeanor completely changed. And so... We ended up meeting over brunch and I just like, I was like, hmm, this is like a cool way to be able to help my friends out and give them advice and have us be in like neutral ground in a place that's comfortable. So I just sent out an email to a handful of friends and I said, hey, if you're willing to buy me a meal, I'll trade you a meal for financial advice. 
And so that was really the beginning of it. And I actually thought it was just going to be like a fun side thing that I did for a while. But then they started telling their friends about it. And then they started telling their friends. And then eventually I was seeing basically strangers. Um, And I had someone just ask me out of the blue one day. She was like, can I pay you for this? Hmm. And I was like, I mean, sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That was the genesis of brunch and budget. And I think that it really... It really took away a lot of the stress and embarrassment that people have around money. People are so afraid to talk about it. And I think I think we're told that we should feel like this is something we need to hide and this is something that we shouldn't talk about and it's not polite to talk about it. And what tends to happen then is we end up kind of in our own echo chamber of, oh, I made this mistake. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know how to ask for help and I don't want to talk to my friends about it because they're just going to think I'm dumb. All right, we are going to take a quick break and hear from our moms. But when we get back, we will share some of the questions that our listeners had for Pam. This is a very straightforward question. What is the best money advice that you've ever received? Oh, my gosh. Well, is it advice that I paid attention to or advice that you didn't pay attention to and wished I had? I'm, I'm kind um, of more interested in the advice you did pay attention to, to be honest. I did pay attention to. I guess the best advice I received was by observing what my parents did in their lives, how they handled money. And that was extremely responsibly and very conscientiously. Uh, don't live outside of your means. Don't spend your resources to present a certain image or maintain a certain lifestyle if you cannot afford it. Do you still keep a check ledger? Yes, I do. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) Well, it's really, it's a good thing. You know, then you know what's there. That's true. Theoretically, anyway. But you know what you've spent money on. And Sometimes I, know you know I don't want to know that. Your phone and all these electronic things. But I don't know. I, I was raised on paper, and I still have an affinity for it. I still write checks to pay all the utilities. Do you really? Yes, I do. Wow. I sure do. Well, thank you, Mom. The best budgeting advice that I've ever received is what I've read it, and I've um, my parents both told me this is live below your means. Uh-huh. And the other piece of advice, which is really hard, but I think it's a good one to take. Nothing is a bargain if you don't need it. Tell me more. Well, say you go and you say, oh, my God, I love this 20 percent of 50 percent of absolute clearance. But if you really don't need it, like if you're a person who has 100 pairs of shoes and you don't need another pair, so then, you know, it's not a bargain. So it's just to keep shopping in perspective you don't need the item you don't need it so even if it's just a penny you could have saved that penny then and this is my favorite always eat at home as much as you can because that saves you a ton of money yeah so live below your means eat at home buy things in bulk plan your pantry uh use a pressure cooker (laughs) I mean, it's not to do with, you know, it's, it's, it's budgeting. You can really. How does a pressure cooker impact your budgeting? Because, because you can buy things in bulk. You can make a bunch of soup. You know, if you're really tight for money, you need, that 
he used and cut back on like extraneous stuff like clothes and everything. But food, you really can't cut back on. Everyone needs to eat. So if you know how to be a tight ward in the food department, then you got it made. Okay, Mom. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Good advice. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So we're going to start off with a question Sandra's sister had for Pam. How do you advise women to ask for raises when it's often more difficult, especially when they know maybe a man who's doing the same job is getting paid more than them already. So one of the biggest differences that I'll say when it comes to when men ask for raises versus women is men tend to ask for a raise at the point where they think, okay, so I'm about to do all this work for you, so you should give me more money for it. And women come at it from, I've already done all this work for you, you should give me more money for it. Oh, I'm nodding so hard, so aggressively nodding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and it's it's part of our tendency to want to be team players and to want to want people to know that we're in it, we're in it 100%. We want to champion this. And so, one of the things that you do have to keep in mind as you're about to ask for a raise is you don't need to necessarily do more beforehand to ask for the raise so much as think about what you've already done before. Think about what evidence you have to support the fact that you have the capability and you have the knowledge and you have the expertise to be able to move on into the next level of whatever your job is. And that's how you should present the raise. The other thing too, is I think people tend to think they should ask for a raise during their annual review. Hmm. And that's actually the worst time to ask for a raise because budgets are already decided. Your raise is already decided. It's already been built into the budget, and there's probably not much wiggle room at that point. So what I usually recommend is you start to ask for a raise three to six months before that conversation even happens. And so I actually did this personally with uh, with my old boss at my old firm where I was technically hired to do the same thing as two other people. And it was quickly becoming clear that I was doing very different work from them and a different level of work as they were. So I started talking to her and I said, hey, I feel like I am, you know, moving into a different position at this point. I'm doing, you're giving me different responsibilities. 
And she ended up helping me create a new job description for a brand new position and then was able to promote me into that position. But that took months of like back and forth and meetings and, you know, figuring out like how all of this could work and if someone needed to fill in my role, my old role while I took on the new role. So that, that's something too that I highly recommend. Well, you've looked at a lot of people's financial situations. Do you notice differences, particularly among millennials, between what a a typical female client who you're sitting down with, what their situation looks like and what a male client situation is? So I have to say, and I don't know if this is an anomaly, but usually when a couple comes to me, for instance, usually the woman is the breadwinner. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So so that's been an interesting dynamic. And I've also had women who have met with me and said, it's so nice to talk about this with a woman. And I I wonder if that is because I'm a woman that women who, you know, are the main, are the main, you know, sources of income or who tend to make more money than their partners um, also want to seek out, you know, having a financial planner who can kind of relate to where they are. So I haven't noticed that luckily, but I do have, I do make a point to have a conversation with every single client, especially if they're a woman, that they need to ask for a raise, especially if they would never asked for one before. Totally. That makes sense. And that's, so one of our listeners asked sort of specifically about that process of working with a man. So she said, you know, I want to invest in stocks, but I don't know where to start. I'm afraid some anonymous dude is going to mishandle my stuff. <laughs> I've done some reading about Elvest, but I don't know if that's a good place to begin. I also don't have a ton of money to start with, but would like to put like $500 somewhere, but I'm really overwhelmed. So how would you respond to that kind of concern? Yeah, absolutely. I think that investing feels like this giant, like mysterious thing that you have to know everything about it before you even start. And what's nice is there are, there are, Companies like Elevest and Betterment is another one that does something really similar. It's not women-focused, but they do the same thing. They're called robo-advisors in the industry. And basically what that means is if you just want to start investing and you don't necessarily have the time to pick stock, which I don't usually recommend anyway because that's like a part-time job. I don't do that myself. But if you just want to start investing and start getting an idea of what a portfolio looks like and what an asset allocation looks like, then something like Elevest or something like Betterment is a good place to start because what they'll do is they'll ask you a series of questions based on how comfortable you are with risk and how long you have to put the money away, and they actually have preset portfolios based on your risk number, essentially. So Betterment, for instance, has 10 different portfolios, um, and it's 1 through 10 based on your risk, with 10 being the riskiest. And when you're younger, you can take more risk because you have more time for that money to grow. And so that's sort of how they determine which portfolio they put you in and which different stocks and bonds they put you in. Hmm. So I think it's just important to start. And I actually also, I would like to see if I could explain the difference between a stock and a bond, if there's time. Oh, go right ahead. Please Please go into that. (laughs) Yes. So... When you own stock, that means that you are part owner of a company. And so every single stock, you're allowed to vote for certain decisions the company's about to make. Not Most people don't do it because they don't know that they can. Like there's a proxy vote option. 
But so when you own stock, you're an owner in the company, which means that if the company does well, then you do well with it. And if the company doesn't do so well, then you don't do that well with it. Bonds are basically an IOU. So the company is borrowing money from you and you are actually the lender. And so what that means is because you are lending them money, you're not participating in like the huge growth of the company, but you're also not having to deal with like a company, you know, and it's downfall essentially. Mm. And so with a bond, because you're a lender, you are given an interest rate every single year through the bond. And you basically, they call it clipping that coupon, but you are given like a steady interest rate on a regular basis. And then after a certain number of years, you get your money back as well. And so the reason why bonds are tend to be considered safer than stock is because you're a creditor, basically, if you buy a bond, which means that if the company were to go under, then you would be first in line to get your money back. Whereas if you are an owner, like you are when you own a stock, then if the company goes under, then you kind of go under with it. That makes sense. That is the most accessible description of those two things I've ever heard. <laughs> so I think we are, are, so Sandra and I are both 28, and we're sort of at this interesting point in our careers where if we do have a job, there there may be, at least for me, I have like, you know, your employer contributes X amount to a retirement account, and you contribute X amount, and we're hearing a lot about retirement accounts, but that still feels so far away for us at this point. Um, so someone asked sort of in response to having a retirement person come into their place of work saying, you know, if I'm only really saving $200 a month, should I really be putting a quarter of it into retirement? What would you say um, to that and sort of this question of how to prioritize your savings when you are only saving 200 or so dollars a month? Yeah, absolutely. I think the very first thing is if your employer is matching in a 401k, so if for every dollar you put in, they put in 50 cents, for instance, definitely prioritize doing that above anything else because that's basically free money. You don't even have to put it in the stock market and you have mm -hmm. a 50% return. So that's the first thing that I would look into is to see if your employer is matching it. The other thing is with retirement accounts and with things like IRAs, so traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs, there is a really nice tax advantage. So every dollar that you put away into a 401k means that you don't have to pay tax on that money until you pull the money out. And so usually that gives you a nice big refund at the end of the year. So not only are you saving money for retirement, but you're also paying less in taxes, which means you probably end up taking home more money or getting a bigger refund check. And so I do recommend taking advantage of the retirement account. I don't recommend putting all of your money in there because retirement amounts are pretty illiquid, which means mm. that you can start taking the money out when you're 59 and a half. And if you pull the money out before that time, then you do have to pay taxes and, and a 10% penalty on it. So the retirement account, I think it's a matter of splitting between building this savings cushion on the side that's cash and something that you can tap into in case you needed to, in case you wanted to go on an extra vacation or in case an emergency came up. And then on the other side, taking what you can, maybe, you know, $100 of that $200 and putting it towards retirement. So you are putting money away into something that is helping you out in your taxes in the short term. And in the long term, you'll have access to this money when you're 60, 65, 70. And you've also given it time to grow over 30 years by investing it in the stock market. 
Wow. Thank you. Well, okay. So here in terms of long-term investments, a question that Mm -hmm. many people our age and who've been working as professionals for a couple of years now are facing where we live, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, they're these mid-sized cities in the South that have until very recently not been places where you necessarily want to live downtown. They were big suburb communities for a long time. Uh, But many of us now work in downtown areas and find ourselves renting within the city limits because it's very difficult to afford to buy a house within downtown because the value of properties has gone up so quickly. And people are at this Mm -hmm. juncture where at what point are you able to say it's not worth it to me to rent versus I want to live downtown, Mm. I work downtown, and even though this money is essentially just going out into the ether, once I write this rent check, it's worth it to me in this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like a classic rent versus buy question, right? Of Is that something that I should be thinking of? And I feel like that, especially in in cities, and especially in cities where the cost of living is really high, I feel like people tend to think that when you rent, you're throwing your money away. But in a city, renting usually works out better, especially if you don't know if you plan to be there for that long. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of, yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of people who will be in a city for maybe two years, maybe five years, and then they're ready to start a family and they don't want to raise their family in a city. If you ended up buying in a city and you're paying a, a huge mortgage and now you have to figure out how to sell it then you've sunk a lot of money into this place that is not your forever place anyway and it's not where you want to settle down. So I think the real question to ask yourself in terms of deciding um, whether it's okay to be renting in the city is, one, if you want to live in the city and you don't plan to be there forever but it's great for your job right now, then how long do you plan to stay there? So if you don't plan to stay there for very long, then it does not make sense to buy because buying means you're putting a down payment down on a home. You have to maintain it. You might have to pay maintenance fees anywhere on top of it. It's a condo. And there's all these hidden costs that go with buying a home that don't actually go back into the actual Mm, value of the house or the equity of the house. And so if you're living in a city and you're renting, then that's probably the best thing to be doing, honestly. That makes sense. Uh, okay, our last rapid fire question uh, is about lifestyle creep. Uh, so you talk I know you talk about it in a podcast. Sort of describe sort of what it is and and sort of how it impacts our wallets and how you recommend dealing with it. Yeah, I like to think of it as like, remember when you were in college and <laughs> All the time. you were living with like four people? <laughs> and you, I, I know what I did is I bought a burrito and ate half of it for lunch and half of it for dinner. And that was my, that was my eating for the day. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I feel like what tends to happen is as we make more money, we don't realize that things that were once luxuries are suddenly now necessities. So before, you know, buying a nice coffee was a treat. And now it's something that you're doing five times a week. Or before you you took trips where you stayed at hostels and Airbnb the whole time and you only went on one big trip a year and now you're finding yourself going on three or four trips a year because the money is there. And so it always feels like you're living paycheck to paycheck no matter how much money you're making. 
And so that's basically what lifestyle creep is, is this idea of like whatever's in the account gets spent and it eventually gets spent on something. And what tends to happen as our incomes go up is we don't, we don't manage the fact that we're getting more money in our paycheck because it usually doesn't feel like it's that much more. If you're making, if you got a $5,000 raise, that's maybe an extra hundred bucks a paycheck. So that money can easily get swallowed up. But if you're making $5,000 more a year, every single year, then suddenly your lifestyle is matching up with how much money you're making. So one of the things that I usually recommend is to be proactive and to get ahead of it is one, as you make more money, it's okay to spend more money. It's a thousand percent okay to spend more money and to indulge in things that you weren't able to indulge in anyway, because that's part of the point of this, right? Uh, the thing that I usually recommend, and I actually read this on a blog of a financial planner who I really admire named Michael Kitsis, is he recommends that you take whatever amount of your raises and you look at that amount and you say, okay, I'm going to automatically put 50% of this towards savings. So if your raise is an extra 200 bucks a month, then 100 bucks a month of it goes to savings automatically, an extra $100. And the other $100, do whatever you want with. And that way, you're still enjoying the fruits of your labor, but you're also consistently saving more money every single year and every single time you get a raise as well. That makes sense. Well, we have time for about one more question, and we want to pivot to a bigger picture uh, subject that we're really interested in because we've seen that on your shows you have talked about how race and gender intersect with financial circumstances, financial personalities. And we'd love for you to Mm -hmm. touch on that in the limited time that we have left. I mean, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've been doing a lot of work exploring what the racial wealth gap is, what the racial wealth divide is. And I've learned that you can't really talk about economics without talking about race. Hmm. Yeah, one of the most shocking stats that I've seen recently is something that the CFED put out the Corporation for Enterprise Development, and they found in their research that it would take 228 years for the average black family to catch up in wealth to that of the average white family today. Wow. And that means that basically the average white family would have to stop growing their wealth today, and it would still take 228 years for the average black family to catch up. And there are a number of factors that go into that. One is really just generational poverty. Um, That's a really big factor is being a part of the cycle. So growing up in the projects, living on food stamps, and you go over one extra dollar, you go over 100 bucks a month, and suddenly you're not eligible anymore. So there's no incentive to get out of that cycle. The other thing, too, is... I think higher education, like going to college is a big myth in terms of getting out of poverty, essentially, because usually what tends to happen is if you're first generation, you're the first generation to go to college. That means that you're probably the one making the most money in your family and you are the one taking care of your family instead of the other way around. So the other aspect of this is that there's a difference between the income gap and the wealth gap. So two people can make $100,000. And one person gets to save that $100,000, um, gets to gets to put it towards buying a house, 
And another person is helping their mom pay rent and is helping out their aunts and their uncles when they need an extra hand. And so that same $100,000 is being used very differently. And so we tend to find that more with communities of color where because you're first generation, because you're the first person potentially to get out of poverty in your family, then you're still playing catch up. Um, The other thing, too, is there's just been a lot of I, I don't know if you've heard of redlining before. Yeah. It's still kind of happening mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, commu- families of color and particularly black families are still catching up to that. So catching up to the concept of owning a home because owning a home is a really big component to your net worth. When you own a home and it grows in value, then your wealth grows as well. And so in the 1950s, there were a lot of housing subsidies. So a middle class was created because the government actually provided subsidies for people to be able to buy homes. And we need another subsidy like that now to be able to create another middle class and bring up another class of people. But because the rhetoric kind of got lost in the shuffle and this whole concept of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea of giving people money to be able to buy homes is something that a lot of people are against. And so that's, we're kind of stuck in the middle right now. And we're kind of stuck at this transition point of, is the racial wealth gap going to continue to grow? Or is it something where, what efforts can we do to close the gap, you know, ever so slightly every single year? That's our show for the week. You can check out Pam's own podcast that airs every Sunday on Bonfire Radio at 2 p.m. And you can find all the old episodes of her work at brunchandbudget.com. Follow her on Instagram at brunchandbudget. And find us, as always, at sheandherradio.com. Like us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sheandherradio. Thanks so much for listening. See y'all next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.